Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. I am continuing the series in Luke, and last week we looked at the idea of lostness. We covered the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son, and that was Luke 15. And um, one of the joys and challenges of preaching through the Bible is that um, we don't really get to pick and choose what we're going to be preaching on next. So next is chapter 16, and chapter 16 is the parable of the unjust steward or the dishonest manager. So this is directly after Jesus has spoken about the prodigal son. He then continues in Luke 16, and I'm going to be reading out of the Common English Bible. Jesus also said to the disciples, so he's speaking specifically to his disciples here, a certain rich man heard that his household manager was wasting his estate. He called the manager in and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give me a report of your administration because you can no longer serve as my manager. The household manager said to himself, what will I do now that my master is firing me as his manager? I'm not strong enough to dig and too proud to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from my management position, people will welcome me into their houses. One by one, the manager sent for or summoned each person who owed his master money. He said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, 900 gallons of olive oil. The manager said to him, take your contract, sit down quickly, and write 450 gallons, half that amount. When the manager said to another, how much do you owe? He said, 1,000 bushels of wheat. He said, take your contract and write 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted cleverly or for his shrewdness. People who belong to this world or are sons of this world are more clever in dealing with their peers than are people who belong to the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to make friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful with little is also faithful with much, and the one who is dishonest with little is also dishonest with much. If you haven't been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? If you haven't been faithful with someone else's property... Who will give you your own? No household servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or you will be loyal to the one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The Pharisees, who were money lovers, heard all this and they sneered at him. He said to them, You're the ones who justify yourselves before other people, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued by people is deeply offensive to God. Now, this is a a problematic text. Um, it is one of the most avoided and disagreed upon. Preachers avoid this, teachers avoid this, commentators avoid this. So when you go and study, you'll find like a lot of commentators that just kind of skim over the top of it. And even commentators disagree with each other about it, but commentators are quite polite when they disagree. Uh, they use words like less than plausible, or his interpretation is problematic, or it's rather disingenuous to say this. They should just say this guy's wrong, you know. Part of the challenge with this is the apparent commendation of something that is, um, yeah, of something that is wrong. There's also an incongruency where Jesus seems to be saying that on the face of it, um, you need to use money to get friends. In fact, the Roman Emperor Julian 
would refer to this passage as proof that Jesus and his followers were liars and cheats. Now, Emperor Julian wasn't very bright because he also thought that Christians were cannibals because they ate Jesus' flesh and drank his blood. You could see how he could get that confused. Generally speaking, he's not a very bright guy. Um, there's some important background, though, that we need to understand in order for this text to make sense, not only in the, to the original audience, but to us as we look at it. What was his job? What, what was the manager doing? Well, the manager managed uh, what were known as tenant farmers. Now, tenant farmers would use land that was not specifically theirs. It was owned by the master, so this master was owning this land, and they would, they would farm on this land. And when time for harvest came, well, the way in which they would pay for the privilege of using this land was a portion of their yield would go to the master. Now, what the tenant farmers didn't know is how much of that bill was going directly to the master and how much of that bill was going to the steward. Now, it's important to understand there's not a strict employer-employee relationship here where the master was getting paid a specific $100 a day for doing his job. The way that it worked was on commission. So much like, remember at the beginning of Luke when I explained the reason why tax collectors were so hated um, is because the Roman government said, we want X amount of money and whatever you get over that, you can keep. Um, and so this was a very similar setup with the steward. Uh, the master would say, I want what's due to me, and however you get that done, whatever resources you need to use to do that, and whatever you collect above that is yours. And so he really worked on a commission basis. Now, the important thing to realize is that what he was doing was actually legal if he was still under his master's employ. So it wasn't what he was doing that was illegal in terms of negotiating either a better rate for the tenant farmer or adjusting the yield. What he was doing, he had the right to do, but he didn't have the right to do this because he wasn't hired anymore by the master. So we look at the situation and we need to see, okay, well, what's happened in order for the situation to present itself? So the first thing that we don't really understand is that somehow the master found out that he was being cheated. Now, we, we don't know how it was found out. Maybe it was one of the tenant farmers that came to him. Maybe it was one of the other um, people that came and ratted on him, but we don't know that. But the, the master is very, very clear. He's also not someone that's going to be swayed. He didn't ask him for any explanation. And, and what happens here is that there's a sense of silence. The, uh, the servant or the manager doesn't say anything. And now silence when you're being accused is very, very rare, not only in the Near Eastern kind of culture, and those of us that have that kind of background will know, it's very rare to, be, to accuse someone of something and for them to be silent. It's also biblically rare. When you look at the accusations or when people are found out, when, when, when things go wrong, there's never really a sense of silence. Uh, when, when God approaches Adam, what does Adam do? He says, it was her. When God goes to Eve, she says, it was the serpent. Uh, we have constant stories of when someone is um, found out that they deny, hide, or lie. Sarah laughed when God said that, um, that she was going to have a baby. Moses blamed the people, the stubborn people, when he hit the rock. Time after time, there's a sense in which we jump to defend ourselves. And I think sometimes what happens is we need to look at the way we respond when we are exposed. 
particularly in the area of finances. Now, sometimes silence can be a sense of, well, the weight of truth is so heavy that I really can't say anything. Now, I'm a parent. I don't know that I've ever experienced a sense of actually saying, so this is what happened, and silence. I've never experienced that. Parents, have you experienced that? I've usually just experienced the opposite uh, of a consistent sense of, no, this is why I did this, you should have seen that, etc., etc. Sometimes we're silent because of the weight of truth, but sometimes, like in the context of the servant, I think we're silent because we're actually trying to figure out a plan. Okay, I got busted, but how am I going to get out of this? Or it was revealed in this particular financial situation, but I can fix this. And sometimes the, um, the grace of being exposed is not something that we respond to and actually say, oh man, I was wrong, I shouldn't have done that, how do I fix this? Sometimes the immediate thing that we jump to is we jump to worldly solutions to fix this problem. The next thing that happens is he develops a plan. And let me tell you, this guy is very, very bold. Now we know he doesn't have the skill or strength for physical labor. Um, he's too bow- proud to beg. Too dumb to steal. Who knows that line of that song? Anyway, uh, he's too proud to beg. And, and also understand that his position did have power and status. So there's a sense in which he was the manager of his master's household. So it's difficult for him to go back to something a little lower. And he also can't beg because in, those, in that, that culture, he didn't really qualify. In that culture, in order to beg, you need to be blind or lame or have leprosy. He doesn't have any of those things. So he decides, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my debtor's bills, and I'm going to massively reduce the amount that are owed to him. And hopefully by currying this favor, the debtors will hire me because of my perceived generosity. And the boldness in all of this is that he further weakens his master's position. He further weakens his master's financial position. And he starts the cycle where sin begets sin. Uh, Because part of the challenge, and one of the things that if you've been alive or a human being long enough, you know, that in order to, once you start lying once, you need another lie and another lie. And do those lies get smaller and less complex? No, they usually get larger and more complex. Once we start the step away from God, we realize that another step and another step takes us away. The classic example of this is David with Bathsheba. David, it said that um, the, the narrative with David starts at the beginning where it says the time when kings should have gone to war, David was on his roof. So the very first thing about David's initial sin was a sense of entitlement. God had given him a job and a role and his responsibility as a king was to go out to war, but he was sitting on the roof. The next thing that happens is this is how the cycle of sin works. The next thing that happens is he's sitting on the roof And then he looks at this beautiful woman. I could have stopped there. The next thing that happened is he calls the beautiful woman to himself. He could have stopped there. He calls the beautiful woman to himself and he has adultery with her. Could have stopped there. He finds out that she's married to one of his um, chief kind of um, mighty warriors. So he decides that uh, he's going to invite this guy back so that he can sleep with his wife. And so um, whatever, uh, whatever has happened, because she's now pregnant, whatever has happened can be covered up. But this man is of such a high moral character that he comes back 
And instead of sleeping with his wife, he sleeps outside and goes back to the army. Now, this is getting way, way worse. David doesn't know what to do. So then he comes and he says, okay, um, tell the commander of the army to put him on the front line of the battle. And so he dies. And this all started, like it does with many of us, with the concept of sin, with a bad decision not to go to war when that was our responsibility. And many opportunities for us to repent and to actually say, I did something wrong. Help me, Jesus. I, uh, I look at this, this plan, and initially, and most of you are probably sitting there, but it seems to have worked. The goal of the student here is not reform. It's not repentance. It's not restitution. It's to ensure his survival. Now, he doesn't just need another place to live. He's actually got to get another job. And so he's so bold that he summons them. So the, the, the word in, in, uh, in the original is summons. He doesn't ask them to come. He summons them, and he sits them down. And then he, he says, now, quickly. Now, haste is important here because he only has a couple of hours, maybe a couple of days, before he has to hand the book of accounts back to the master. He gets them to do it in their own handwriting. So he says, quickly, come, you write down that this is how much you owe my boss. He has made the farmers and the debtors now complicit in his plan because they are the ones that are changing the debt. He isn't. It's, I understand, again, it's very likely that the master doesn't have a clear idea about how, how much each one actually owes him. That's why he has the master. So this is definitely going to work. A friend of mine... Uh, had three kids, and uh, well, has three kids, and um, he, we were, we were on, a, on an elders retreat, and um, gets this phone call, and he says, uh, there's a party happening at your house, and uh, he's like, there is? Uh, that shouldn't be happening, so he calls the oldest, um, and he says, is there a party happening at the house? And the oldest son says, no, there isn't, right? Could have ended there, right? It could have ended there. He says, no, there isn't. He says, well, that's interesting because someone came to drop off something and they said, there's a party at this house. Oh, oh, it's not a party. It's just a couple people that have come over to, uh, to, to just hang out for a bit. And he says, get rid of them. He says, okay. He puts the phone down. Um, the guy who went and dropped off something then calls my friend and he says, um, so what's happening? He says, no one's going anywhere. There's actually more people arriving. <laughs> so my friend calls his son up and he says, buddy, he hasn't told him that there is literally someone there that is watching what's going on. He says, buddy, I told you to get rid of those people. And he says, I did, I did. Here, he calls his little brother and sister to the phone. And he says, tell mom and dad that, the, that the, there's no party here. So little brother and sister on the phone saying, there's no party here. There's no party here. Why do you think the dad was so annoyed with him? It wasn't the party. It was the fact that he got his brother and sister complicit in this deception. This is how bold this steward is. 
Not only is he trying to finagle a way out of this, but he's made those debtors now complicit in his plan, which isn't going to work anyway, because have you guys thought this through? What is gonna, who is going to hire this manager? I'm like, it seems like it's going to work, but I don't know that any new employer is going to have any trust in someone that has just cheated their current employer. I think part of the challenge that we have is that we can get very ingenious when it comes to covering over things. The one lie that leads to the other lie that leads to the other lie. But my question is this, how much of our energy do we place in dealing with the consequences of the bad decision that we've made instead of actually asking God, what flaw or fear, sin or pattern in my life caused me to be here in the first place? Now remember, initially, he was called into the master's house to say, you have mismanaged my estate. Right there is an opportunity for him and for us to sit there and say, what have I been doing? What lack do I have? What area do I need to shore up? Where do I need help to be able to stop this? Instead, what we more likely do is actually say, okay, well, that happened, so how do I fix this? in a worldly and temporal way. How is this relevant to us? Well, we see three things in this passage. We see uh, an apparent commendation, a criticism, and a challenge. So this is important. Who is being commended and why? The master, the character in this parable, is doing the commendation. Now, Jesus, it's important. Jesus calls him dishonest. The master calls him shrewd. It's not Jesus calling him shrewd. It's the master calling him shrewd. He's not commended for his dishonesty. He's commended for his shrewdness and for understanding that this is how you play the game. Basically, the worldly system commends itself. Have you guys heard the saying, it's, it's nothing personal, it's just business? You know, the interesting thing is I did some digging the man who came up with that phrase was an accountant for organized crime, right? I mean, you've got to look at it's nothing personal, it's just business. How many of you have heard that? How many of you have said that? Don't raise your hands. How many of you have said that? How many of you are, are like, don't take this personally? Uh, there's, a, there's a phrase in Formula One, I love Formula One, and, and the phrase goes like this, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. So there's a sense in which everyone in Formula One is looking at the rules and saying, how can I maneuver and leverage these to the best of my ability? And the other teams are never mad at that team because they've done something wrong. Why are they mad? Because they didn't think about it first. That's generally speaking why they're mad. The question we've got to ask with this commendation is, do I share the monetary values of the children of this world? Do I operate within that system? And when I see something happening like that, I'm not saying, wow, that's unrighteous. I don't think that is, that is accurate. I, I went through something recently where I actually I reached out to David and I said, now, David, I know that there is nothing legally wrong with this, but I'm not sure that there is something, but I'm not sure that, that it's also not morally wrong. And so we had this conversation about whether the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, and, and, and we have this conversation, and it's an important conversation to have, because sometimes just because something is legal doesn't make it moral. 
Just because something is moral doesn't make it legal. And so we are under a higher law, and that's the thing that we need to focus on as we operate in the kingdom of Jesus. Who's been criticized and why? Jesus is doing the criticizing, and he's criticizing the children of this age, and indirectly, the Pharisees. He says, people who belong to this world are more clever in dealing with their peers than are people who belong to the to the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to make friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you will become welcomed into eternal homes. He's saying that people who belong to this world are more clever in dealing with their peers. I sat with a businessman a couple months ago, um, and he told me about this person that, um, that you can hire to add onto your board of directors. Because if, you, if you're doing government work, what the government is looking for is minority and female-owned companies. And her business is literally this, is she hires her name and address out so that she can be on a board of directors somewhere um, so that you can get a government contract. She doesn't do, she doesn't do anything else. That's, that's literally her job. Now, she's not doing anything necessarily illegal right? She is doing exactly what is happening here with what Jesus is saying. People of this world are more clever in dealing with their peers. Now, the people are using, that are using her are also doing that. And so what Jesus is saying is, don't be surprised when you see these little finagles happening from time to time. You need to operate in a different way. If the children of this age understand how the world works and use it for their benefit, then why do the children of light not understand the ways of the kingdom of God? That's what Jesus is saying in this context. If the children of this world understand how the world works and utilize it for their benefit, why do the children of light not do the same thing when it comes to the kingdom of God? If they use their wealth in a compassionate way, They'll be welcomed into eternal homes. Now, this is important. This is an outcome of our relationship with Jesus, not a prerequisite. Do you understand the difference? An outcome of relationship with Jesus means the compassionate use of wealth. It means that we live under a different set of laws and regulations than the world lives. And what Jesus is saying is if you use your wealth in that way, there will be eternal consequences, which means you'll be welcomed into heaven. Now, are we welcomed into heaven because we give money to the poor? No. We're welcomed into heaven because of Jesus' sacrifice. Why do we give money to the poor? Because we have been welcomed by Jesus. And so that is an important differentiation to make. The question that I'm asking is this. Do I share the children of this world's monetary values? Secondly, Am I leveraging my financial position to benefit others? Am I leveraging my financial position to benefit others? Who's being challenged and why? Whoever is faithful in the little is also faithful with much. And the one who is dishonest with little is also dishonest with much. If you haven't been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you haven't been faithful with someone else's property, who will give you your own? Now, it's important to recognize that throughout Luke, as we've been studying this, this is not a shift in Jesus' financial ethic. He's not saying that, that you do anything different. This is not what this parable is about. In fact, when we go back to Luke 12, verse 19, he's talking about the man who built these massive storehouses. Remember, we spoke about that. 
And he said, I'll say to myself, you have stored up plenty of goods, enough for several years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, fool, tonight you will die. Now who will get the things that you've prepared for yourself? This is the way that it'll be for those who hoard things for themselves and aren't rich towards God. So Jesus is making a very clear connection about the way in which we handle, think about, pursue, and manage our finances and our spiritual character. Does that make sense? How I handle, think about, pursue, and plan is a massive indicator of spiritual realities in my life. It's very difficult for me to remember a time when I saw someone that was generous in spirit, generous with people, expecting the best in people, easy to, um, uh, quick to forgive, and was very stingy. Oftentimes, these things go together. Throughout, the king, throughout Luke, the kingdom financial ethic is very clear. Now, Jesus says, later on, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one or love the other. He'll be loyal to one or have contempt for the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The Pharisees, who were money lovers, heard this and they sneered at him, rolled their eyes. This is another area of boldness for me. Jesus here is telling this parable and then you sneer at him in his presence. I mean, we know they didn't think much of him, but it's still pretty bold. And then he says to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves before other people, but God knows your heart. What is highly valued by people is deeply offensive to God. Now, let me clarify a couple of things. We understand not only the financial ethic that comes through Luke, but Jesus' financial ethic and the ethic of the kingdom. Money is not evil. That's an important thing to recognize. But the disordered pursuit and use of money is what can take our heart away from God. Money itself is not evil, but the disordered pursuit and use of it is what can turn our heart away from God. The second thing that Jesus is consistently trying to tell his disciples and us is that it is uncertain and it will fail. Consistently, Jesus is telling us the same thing. Now, money can and should be used to assist and alleviate the plight of the poor. And in this way, our treasure is being stored in eternal dwellings where it cannot fade, it cannot rust, it cannot disappear, and it cannot be swindled by a dishonest steward. The clue in all of this is that Jesus talks many times about when it fails, when it's gone. It triggers us to remember back in Luke 12, the same passage that I was reading, where the man was going to build bigger barns, but Jesus says this, Give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth can destroy. So the overarching kingdom financial ethic is that money is not evil, it is uncertain and it will fail, that its main purpose is the alleviation and assistance of the poor, and that financial faithfulness is a strong indicator of spiritual faithfulness. If you can't be righteous and faithful with money that will fail, how can God trust you with an eternal reward? I, uh, I've borrowed my friend's car before, and I've had a rental before. And I have to tell you, even when I was thinking about this, I was a little condemned about the difference in my driving style 
between my friend's car that I borrowed and the rental car. Uh, I was maybe a little more go-karty in the rental car. Uh, I maybe didn't care that much about speed bumps in the rental car. Um, why? Because in a sense, I was thinking, well, I've paid for this, and I'm going to drive the heck out of this car. They're ripping me off, making me pay the insurance at the airport, all of those kinds of things. My friend's car, though, is a little different. I have to return that car to my friend. So I clean the car inside and outside, I vacuum it, I fill the tank, do all those things. Just remember, if you ever want to borrow my car. So, um, so those, those are the things that I do. Why? Because there's, there's a very immediate sense in which I'm going to hand the keys back to Sean and say, Sean, thanks very much for letting me borrow your car. Now, the problem is, and this is where I was a little condemned, is that everything we have is a gift from God that we will have to give an account to. Our money, our body, our words. We are stewards of all of these things. And there will be a day where we hand those keys back. And, and where the way in which we handle that will say something of the way in which God has actually been able to shift our hearts away from our own selfishness to a sense of being a steward, a good steward. You know, I take pictures of the rental car to make sure that I can't get charged for anything. I take a video of the rental car, I timestamp it, I do all those kinds of things, mainly because, you know, I, I have a problem. But, um, <laughs> but none of that I do because I'm a good steward. All of that I do because of what the steward is doing. I'm, I'm protecting my position. I think what, what Jesus is asking us is like, when we engage financially, is are we protecting our position? Or are we using our finances in a kingdom way to reflect something of our generous God? Because ultimately we will be held to account. We are stewards. We're stewards of our possessions, of this planet, of the way we speak to the people on this planet, of all of those things. Does the way I think about, handle, pursue and plan financially reflect kingdom values or just simply worldly ones? Now these can be big things in terms of, no, you don't trust God, or you're a hoarder, or you don't give, or you're not generous. They can be little things. And I've shared this before, but one of the challenges that I have in terms of and I mean, I can't even really call this generosity because God challenged me one day. He says, this is not generosity. This is return on investment. God said to me, I want you to give some money away. And so the first thing that I did was I looked in my mind. I'm like, okay, who's really deserving of this money? Oh, I am the benevolent person who's going to give this money that was a gift from God anyway. And I'm a steward of it, but I feel so powerful. And I'm going to look for someone that's deserving to give this. God said, that's not generosity, that's return on investment. You're looking at people and you're saying, who's, who's, who's not going to squander this? And I was. I was looking for people that were maybe in a little bit of a financial pinch, but in general had their lives in order. And God said to me, I want you to give this money to that person. I'm like, that person? That person is in debt up to here. That person makes horrible choices and decisions. That person doesn't know how to handle money. I want you to give that to them. It's a picture of the gospel. 
because I gave you something you didn't deserve. Generosity is not about return on investment. Generosity is about saying, I have something that I'm able to gift to you, that hopefully by this gift, you'll be able to see the generosity of the Father. And so this is not about cheating your, uh, always, or only rather, about cheating on your taxes. This is not about swindling someone out of a business deal. This is even if you have the, uh, the disciplines of generosity in your life, it's actually asking the Spirit of God, why am I doing this? Remember right at the beginning, the steward had the opportunity to say, wow, I messed up. What about my character? What about my past? What about my sin patterns brought me here? Instead of quickly trying to fix the situation. I think the problem is a lot of us make shrewd but not kingdom choices. So I want to feel safe and secure, so I'm going to hoard money. I'm not going to spend it. I'm not going to have a lavish lifestyle. I just want to know that it's in the barn. Or we make shrewd but kingdom choices because I don't have a job that is meaningful. I'm not in a marriage that is delighting me. I want to have these experiences that are going to give me some sense of joy. And so for that, I'm going to leverage my credit card. If I operate, however, out of the lived out belief that God is generous, faithful, trustworthy, then I won't hoard because my security won't be in money. I'll be generous. I won't be anxious. And I won't seek a sense of fulfillment that leads me to death. If I operate out of the belief that temporal things are just that, temporal, then I will use them in a way that shapes my character and shows the generosity of God to others. I won't believe that it's all up to me. Tony's picture this morning of like God's kindness of just kind of gold settling down. I've had multiple times where God has broken through in our lives financially. And those are times that that I hold on to because it wasn't about me doing the right things. It was about God's kindness and faithfulness. Band, you can come up. Money is temporary, but the way I think about it, handle it, pursue it, and plan does have eternal consequences. I look at the story and I I think to myself, the one thing I can't get away from is Is the master here a patsy? Because it looks like he's a patsy. It looks like, I mean, who would let the servant get away with this kind of thing? Just because we get away with something doesn't mean that it's acceptable or right. And we celebrated Martin Luther King Jr.'s um, holiday. And he says this, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Just because something has happened in your life, whether it's financial or otherwise, and it isn't being directly judged by the master who's called you in and said, now give an account for that behavior, does not mean that it's right and does not mean that it won't have consequences. It may not be now, it may not even be in this, in this life, but the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. What we need to understand is that the master had certain legal rights here. He had the legal right to summon the farmers and to demand full payment. He was not a valid representative, and so you still owe me what you owe me. He didn't do that. He had the right to jail the steward and his family until all of the outstanding debt was paid. He didn't do that. 
Now, we have to remember that this parable comes directly after the prodigal son, where the father is the one that is swindled and yet uses his own wealth to be able to welcome that son back. I think sometimes we look at the master's kindness as permission to do wrong things. We look at that and we say, well, you know, if it was that wrong, then surely something would have happened or God would have stopped me. Maybe this morning you're in a place where you've intentionally made some worldly choices when it comes to money. God's grace is here for you to repent and receive His grace. Maybe you're in a financial hole. You haven't cheated, you haven't done anything illegal or immoral to get there, but what you have done is you've tried to fix it on your own using the ways of this world. Or maybe you are the wounded party here. Maybe you're sitting here and you've been swindled. Someone has taken advantage of you. God is generous. God is kind. God uses the fading things of this world to project His glory to us. God has given us so much. He sent and given His Son to pay the price that we can't afford. His grace is so overwhelming that when we owed all of this debt, He didn't come and halve it. Like the Master, He paid it completely. He's adopted us into His family and He's promised to love, lead, provide, and protect us. But he's also said that he would not shield us from hardship. So Nick, how much sense does that make? Because his promise is about his presence, not about the absence of difficulties. He's freely given his spirit in us that trains us and teaches us to live in a countercultural way. He will enable us to think about, to handle, to pursue and plan in a way that rescues us from anxiety and from pride and brings glory to Him. Let's pray. Father, one of the most well-known verses in the Bible is that you loved and you gave. God, you so loved this world that you gave. Giving is in your nature. Giving what we don't deserve. Giving more than we can ask. Father, I'll ask this morning for those of us that are caught in just cycles of anxiety. God, I want to pray that you'd break through. I want to pray for those that are just caught in this whole idea of I can fix this, I can do it. God, I want to pray that we'd reach out to you. More than anything, God, I want to pray, Spirit, that you would give us a fresh picture of our Father in heaven. A generous, kind, loving, forgiving, empowering God who wants us to be free from the stress, anxiety, and pride associated with finances. Spirit of God, come and minister, I pray. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.